Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Turn me your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you can, please stand when you get that. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Go down to verse 14. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told him to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. And the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Father, once again, we thank you that we can gather together and worship you. We can fellowship with one another, and now we can learn from your word. I pray, Lord, that your word would do whatever it needs in every heart that is represented here today, Father. That's these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Crime does not pay, especially if you're about like the guys I'm about to tell you about. These are all true accounts. For a trio of drug thieves, it was their lucky day. They broke into a home in Silver Springs, Florida, and they discovered three jars of cocaine. They immediately took it home and snorted the contents. That's when they discovered that the jars were in actuality cremation urns. And so they were snorting the remains of the victim's husband and her two dogs. When an attempted robbery at a Lowe's Home Improvement store went awry, Milton J. Hodges fled across the street and jumped a fence right into the Cypress Cove Nudist Resort. 
If that wasn't bad enough, as Orlando Siddle pointed out, as one of the only people wearing clothing, Hodges was easily spotted by police. Perhaps the worst possible time to faint would be during robbing a bank. But that's what happened to a Beaver Creek, Ohio thief. The teller called 911 and asked for the medics. But you have to applaud the man's perseverance because while the ambulance was en route, the suspect still handed a note to the teller demanding all of her money. A San Francisco thief pedaled his bike up to a woman on a sidewalk, snatched her iPhone, and rode away. Unknown to him, the woman was in the middle of demonstrating the iPhone's new GPS tracking device, which worked as advertised as a thief was caught minutes later. And finally, recently, a woman in Fresno, California, was stopped at a DUI checkpoint for being plastered. She must have been one of those happy and friendly drunks because she offered up this info to the cop. My husband's right behind me, and he's even drunker than I am. Thanks a lot, sweetie pie. Look at verse verse 14 with me. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Two contradictory views of life are captured in the sayings, crime doesn't pay, and who says crime doesn't pay? The first view sounds noble, wise, and good. It recognizes the bitter fruit that doing wrong can produce and warns would-be perpetrators to think again. The second view, however, reflects the realistic observation of life that crime often does pay. Which you believe really, and why? Because there is ample evidence to support the second perspective. Few really believe that there is nothing to be gained from criminal activity. Otherwise, by this time, most intelligent criminals would have learned their lesson. However, all over the world, And in every nation and people group, every city and village, crime continues to be a daily part of life. Those who engage in these unlawful activities believe that they will benefit from them in some way. And it's far from obvious that they are wrong in this estimation. Now, of course, they are sometimes wrong. Sometimes criminals do get caught. Sometimes they fail in their intentions. Some wrongdoings have unexpected consequences, like the perpetrators in our opening illustrations. But this does not refute the fact that we live in a world where crime often does pay very handsomely indeed. Crime doesn't pay sounds good, but it sounds more like wishful thinking than persuasive truth. Those responsible for crime prevention in any community have the undesirable task of persuading would-be criminals that the penalties for their unlawful behavior and the risk of being caught somehow outweighs the possible 32 benefits of not being caught. Crime probably will not pay is a difficult message to convey and is never completely successful. I suspect that few people in this room are criminals, despite this being a Calvary Chapel. However, what if we include all forms of wrongdoing? Consider some of the wrong things you may have done recently. 
a white lie, a less than kind action, a broken promise, some selfish and inconsiderate behavior, or simply not doing some good that you had the ability to do. Now here's my suggestion. In every case, we did the wrong thing because we believed that we would derive some benefit from that. In other words, all of us who do wrong of any kind actually believe that doing wrong, at least sometimes, does pay. We believe that we gain pleasure, prosperity, security, status, power, or some other advantage by doing the wrong thing. Otherwise, we would never do it. Who says crime doesn't pay? Second Samuel begins with a remarkable incident when someone was convinced like that that crime does pay. He did something he should never have done, and in doing so, he made a terrible miscalculation. The opening episode of Second Samuel, set in the context of the Bible as a whole, teaches us that whatever game we may anticipate when we do wrong is short-sighted and it is diluted. That is because this is God's world. The fleeting pleasures of sin are just that. They are fleeting and they are transitory. It may not seem like that, but it is like that. Because the one who determines the final outcome of all things is also the one who makes all the rules, namely the righteous and holy God. In verse 14, David presses this Amalekite by asking him why he wasn't afraid to touch the Lord's anointed. Here's a theme that has run like a thread through both books of Samuel. The exact expression, the Lord's anointed, occurs 11 times in the Old Testament. All of but one are recorded in the books of Samuel. The Lord's anointed is biblical language for the one chosen and appointed by the Lord to represent him as the king. This is the very title that would one day be applied to Jesus. Now, there are two important ideas here. The first is that only God himself may both appoint and remove his king. Even when Saul had been rejected by God and David had been chosen and designated as his successor, no one but the Lord had the right to act against the one whom the Lord has anointed. Even though Saul had hardened his heart against God, David recognized that Saul was still the king because the Lord allowed him to be the king. That is why when David himself had two separate opportunities to kill Saul, he didn't do so. Like that, we are never to take matters into our own hands. Even David refused to do such a thing. The second idea is that to oppose the Lord's anointed, is to oppose the Lord himself. All this David understood. Saul's armor bearer understood this. The young Amalekite, however, did not. In verse 15, David announces his death sentence. And in verse 16, he tells the Amalekite it is because of his own testimony that he is worthy of death. The Amalekite thought that he deserved a reward, but instead... He is killed for his actions. Throughout scripture, Amalek is an illustration of the flesh. We are to mortify or to kill the flesh because if we don't annihilate it and eradicate it, it will destroy us eventually. 
Now, of course, this Amalekite would never have existed had Saul obeyed God in the first place. We covered that last week. Saul lost his monarchy because he didn't understand that Amalek had to be dealt with. Be sure of this this morning. There are no excuses for sin. There is only a cure. And that cure is repentance. We're not to explain, explore, or excuse sin. We're simply to acknowledge, confess, and repent. There's an application I want us to draw out of that. I want to look at it from the perspective of a guilty person coming before the king and the judge because that is a snapshot of all mankind. More than that, one day, that is going to be every one of us in this room. What do I mean? The Amalekite is the first Gentile to come to the Jewish king for judgment. And how did he come to him? He came to King David cloaked in his own righteousness, telling David what all he perceived to be his good works in killing Saul. And if I were a betting man, I would say that on that great judgment day, that will be the exact same strategy of the vast majority of the entire human race. Do not think that on that great day, any of us can stand before the judge of all of the universe and impress him with the fact that we were basically decent people. I mean, we tried not to cuss and drink, and we always recycled. None of that is going to impress God, no matter what any yogurt-sucking guru may tell you. We must come to the king only in the way that he prescribes. It reminds me of Jesus' parable in Matthew 22. And he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Likewise, when we come to him, we do not come to him in our righteousness, cloaked in our words and our posture. The only way to come to him is the way that Paul tells us in Philippians 3 where he says, And that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That has always been and will always be the only path that God will accept. Verse 17, please. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan and his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. This lament came to be known as the song of the bow and was recorded in the book of Jasher, which was a collection of poems and songs that commemorated great events in the history of Israel. They constitute what someone has called the most beautiful heroic lament of all time. 
they are called a lamentation, which may be described as grief put into words. David's first act as their king was to teach them a psalm. But what I find interesting is during this time of lamentation and mourning, David calls this song the song of the bow. Now, why would he say that at this time? We have to go back into 1 Samuel 13. That tells us that the Philistines had taken away all the weapons and instruments of iron from the Israelites to ensure their own military advantage as they ruled the region. It would seem that Jonathan and Saul were the ones who familiarized the bow and arrow to the people of Israel. The arrows would be tipped with stone, thus eliminating the need for iron. The lesson for us this morning is both simple and practical, and it's this. If there has been a loss in your life, a hurt in your heart, an ache to your soul, here's the key. Get back into the battle. Wage war against the enemy. Serve the Lord with new intensity. Give him more than you have ever given him previously. If you don't, you will remain in a state of depression and heaviness. I think another purpose of this song is to help people get over the tragedy. So when you go through times of trouble, tragedy, and sorrow, what should you do? Do something. Just don't sit back and continually feel sorry for yourself. After you have properly mourned whatever loss you have experienced, you need to get back into the fight. And perhaps like this, these Israelites, you can come away with the, from that experience with a new spiritual weapon in your arsenal. But how could David not rejoice at the end of his archenemy Saul? Had the roles been reversed, we can be sure that Saul would have been overjoyed at David's demise. I have no doubt that the death of David would have caused no weeping in the camp of Saul. On this day, however, David wept, as did all of his companions. David and his men did not dance at Saul's death, call him a coward, or spit at his name. They mourned for the loss of a human life, of Israel's first king, and of the first family. David was not interested in writing a tell-all book about Saul's personal life or publish an eyewitness account of how the king treated his son Jonathan, his daughter Michal, and his son-in-law, David himself. He left all that evaluation to the historians, the theologians, and mostly to the Lord himself. He did not diminish or despair Saul's legacy when he had the chance to do so. He had nothing but good to say about the man who hated him, humiliated him, and hunted him. The emphasis David places is on the greatness of Saul and Jonathan, even in their defeat and their death. David celebrated their skill and bravery and their willingness to give their lives for the country. And like Hebrews chapter 11, nothing is recorded in the whole song that speaks of any sins or mistakes in the lives of Saul and Jonathan. We are told in Scripture that we are not to rejoice over the death of an enemy. And the reason for that is because God does not rejoice in that. We are told in Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure at the death of the wicked, but wants all men everywhere 
to repent. Here's an interesting proverb speaking to this. Proverbs 24:17 says, "Do not rejoice when your enemy falls." Now, why would God have to command that? Because that is our proclivity. Ding dong, the witch is dead, witch old witch, wicked witch, right? We love that kind of thing. Don't give me a break, like you won't sing that in the shower when no one's around. Verse 19, please. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Samuel Wise founded the Free Synagogue in New York City back in 1907. He once accepted an invitation to address an anti-Nazi meeting in Brooklyn. He received several death threats. He opened his speech with these words. I have been warned to stay away from this meeting under pain of being killed. If anyone is going to shoot me, let them do it now. I hate to be interrupted. Well, we all hate to be interrupted, and death is the greatest interruption that any of us will ever face. The difficulty, I think, is not so much our being interrupted from our own death, but when we are interrupted from the, with the death of others. Because, quite simply, death is complicated. It not only terrifies us, it also confuses us. Even when death comes by so-called natural means after a long and full life, we still mourn. And although nothing is more certain outside of the rapture than our own death, there are few who know how to come to terms with it and are able to accept it. Death silences us. It's hard to know what to say in the face of death. What do you say to a dying friend or to a grieving family? But at the same time, death has a way of putting everything into its proper perspective. Petty things are seen to be petty. The good qualities of a person are rarely seen as clearly as they are at his or her funeral. Why is this? How are we to respond to the reality of death? What can we say in the face of death? Well, the Bible has much important light to shed on this subject. The horror of the tragedy here is what was. They were mighty, and what now is, they are fallen. Can you sense the loss of the greatness of what once was, but is now no longer? This is the pain of grief. This is the terrible sense of loss. We weep because of what was, but now is not. The mighty have fallen. Suddenly, death cast a bright light over what has been lost. Now, in verse 20, David was not literally telling the people to refrain from announcing their tragedy in the Philistine cities. That was hardly likely. He was rather expressing a desire that the news might not be told there by anyone. The reason was he could barely bear the idea of that triumphant joy that was bound to bring to the Philistine hearers. If you remember the news footage from 9-11 with the people of Iraq dancing in the streets, 
This is exactly what David wants to avoid. Verse 21, please. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, or fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. It was as though the good order of the world had been disrupted. The place where such a terrible catastrophe occurred should not be unaffected. The good order of things, of things like the dew, the rain, the crops, ought not to continue as though nothing had ever happened there. I did learn this week that if you go to Israel, there is a place on Mount Gilboa that has baffled all of the scientists. Because upon that place, there is a huge patch of barren ground on which nothing ever grows, even to this day. It's a dry spot that has been studied by local students and scholars alike, and no one has been able to explain it. Now what I'm about to ask is just a question. Could this be because of David's curse? Inquiring minds want to know. Verse 21 says, Saul's Saul's shield is no longer anointed with oil. Now the picture there is really stark. Saul's shield is now lying in the dirt, splattered, no doubt, with blood. It is clear from its filthy state that it is now no longer anointed with oil. But really, I think the great tragedy of Saul's life is what he might have been as the Lord's anointed king. Just a few years earlier, Samuel had told Saul that had he been obedient to the words of the Lord, the Lord would have established his kingdom forever. The end result of Saul's disobedience is now seen and symbolized in the picture that David's words paint on the defiled shields there on the Mount of Gilboa. Now it's no longer anointed. Verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. You see, to David, these men, they just weren't great soldiers. They were also gracious people who were loyal to each other, even to the death. From his meeting with Samuel in the medium's house, Saul knew that he and his sons would die that very next day in the battle. Yet he still entered the contest, determined to do his best. Jonathan also knew that Saul had disobeyed God and had also sinned against David, yet he stayed right by his side during the entire fight. And even though the army of Israel was defeated, David wanted the people to remember the greatness of their king and his sons. And this may not be a realistic description of Saul's entire life, especially towards the end as he deteriorated into dark paranoia. But there was a time when he was hailed by the nation, which recognized that in all of Israel, there was no one like Saul. David tells the women not to forget that Saul's reign brought prosperity to the entire nation. And even though Saul did die of failure, 
his life did have some good points. And like that, as we grieve, it's important for us to understand it's about the good that has been lost. This will mean remembering the good things. It's a time to put into words what we have lost and to therefore recognize that those things were God's gift to us. And therefore to learn to thank God even in our grief. David was teaching the people to grieve well. Verse 26. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. We should note that the words surpassing the love of women have been improperly taken by some to suggest there was a homosexual aspect relationship between Jonathan and David. In this very public lament, the suggestion that David would even hint at such a thing is ludicrous. Rather, he was saying that the extraordinary relationship between him and Jonathan was more important than even the most cherished relationship between a man and a woman. The point is not so much in the man-to-man friendship they shared as it was the covenant that was between them. Jonathan's love for David had everything to do with David's kingship. If you were with us for our study in 1 Samuel, you remember that Jonathan time and time again laid aside his own rights and privileges to serve David instead. It has nothing to do with sex between them. And quite frankly, you have to be pretty twisted to get that out of this passage. When he speaks of the love of women, he is speaking very highly of women here. You see, women are the great expressors of love in this life. When you see how a woman loved their husband or loved their children, you are seeing sacrificial love in action. What David is doing here is acknowledging the great sacrificial love and other-centered love that Jonathan had shown him time and time again. So David says, Jonathan, when I think of the great love that you have shown me, I can't go to the male side of things. I have to go to the female side. And the closest thing I have seen for your love to me is the great sacrificial love that women are known for. Now, of course, all this is not the whole truth, and it's not a balanced account especially of Saul's life. But David rightly understood that Saul's death was a time to appreciate what had been lost. This is a sincere expression of a broken heart, not only for Jonathan, his close friend and brother, but also for Saul, the man who had relentlessly chased him. Maybe this morning there's someone who's after you throwing verbal spears in your direction or chasing you without mercy. Would you write a song like that for him or her? Look at it. In verse 19, David writes of Saul's and Jonathan's glory. In verse 21, he speaks of their strength and dignity. In verse 23, he refers to their military prowess. And in verse 24, it's a tribute to Saul's economic leadership. In this, we see David's wonderful ability to prove the things that were excellent in Saul. This is what Paul said we are to do in Philippians 1.10, which reads, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless 
until the day of Christ. As we close, in the early days of the Civil War, General Robert E. Lee was severely criticized by General William Whitting. It might have been expected that Lee would wait for a time when he could get even with Whitting. A day came when President Jefferson Davis asked General Lee to come in for a consultation. The president wanted to know what Lee thought of General Whitting. Without hesitation, Lee commended Whitting in the highest terms and called him one of the most able men in the Confederate Army. An officer present motioned Lee aside and said, You must not know the things that Whitting had been saying about you. Lee answered, I understood that the president desired to know my opinion of Whitting, not Whitting's opinion of me. It is my opinion that we are never more like Christ than when we love and pray for our enemies. It's not easy, but it is worth it. And Father, I pray you would drive that truth into our hearts this morning. It's easy to love those, Lord, who are kind and pleasant. It's a whole lot harder, Lord, to love those who at every turn try to do things to hurt us. Only that kind of love can come from you. We don't have that kind of stuff in ourselves, Father. That has to be supernatural in origin. I pray you would do that for us, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.